Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway. Scott, what do you call a house that can't host a party? What do you call a house that can't host a party, Kara? A Joe Manchin. Uh, anyway, <laughs> a, little, a little humor because he's blown joke. up yet another economic deal for uh, yeah. President Biden. Um, although he's not acquitting himself too well by fist bumping with a thug, murderous thug. Um, but anyway, it's been quite a week. Um, what have you, where are you, what have you been doing this week? Uh, I'm in Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my sister and my niece and nephew, nephew are visiting. We went hiking. Um, mm-hmm. Really nice, you know, the, the great outdoors, which I hate, but it makes for good pictures. Oh, nice, um, nice. The dogs are great. Yeah, dogs, yeah, dogs good. and hiking. I had the How whole family in town, including really? Lucky. It was quite a weekend. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In D.C.? Yeah. Well, not the whole family. My kids, all my kids were home at once. Louis back, and they all took off to Europe this week uh, to take. It's a long story, but um, we're all going to Europe on various little things, weddings, and things like that. So everyone was home. It was lovely, actually. I actually cooked over Louis, and we had a great time. Nice. I love those boys. They're so good. Um, anyway, so we have a lot to talk about. There's 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 a little there's a lot going on, but not a lot. There's a lot of economic stuff going on today. We'll talk about Netflix and Microsoft. Netflix signed with Microsoft. Everyone thought they were going to sign with Google. Details of their unlikely partnership. It's really a good thing for Microsoft. Also, there's a new intrigue in Elon Land as ever. We'll speak with author Krista Bilton about her new memoir and her discovery that she was one of more than 30 children of a prolific sperm donor. No, Scott, that wasn't you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, interest rates are going up probably. The Federal Reserve's officials signal they'll likely raise rates by 0.75% later this month. They've done that before. People thought there was going to be a full point rise that investors had feared. Meanwhile, the dollar is the strongest it's been in 20 years. It's really kind of a weird recession. A lot, Jamie Dimon was saying, we're not really in a recession. The head of City uh, Citibank, uh, Jane Frazier, was saying we are, but consumer spending is up. Consumer sentiment is down. Uh, jobs are up. Uh, there's lots of jobs. Uh and the labor market's really strong. It's a very strange recession, but most people feel like this might shove, there's no way out of this without shoving us into one. So what do you think um, the risks are of this interest rate hike and what's going on with the dollar? Well, there's just no getting around it. You have to incur some pain to get out of inflation. And the U.S. is actually uh, fairly well positioned on a relative basis because the strength of the dollar, it'll take down the earnings of organizations like Nike and McDonald's that have a lot Mm -hmm. of overseas operations. But essentially, when the dollar becomes this strong, it's the equivalent of sort of a tax hike on almost every other country in the world because it so many, indeed. so many nations, the dollar is still the reserve currency. The majority, even if you're not buying American goods, you might be transacting in dollars. Mm-hmm. Yep. So your your purchasing power outside of the U.S. is going down, and the dollar, for all the talk about the decline of the U.S., everyone's always, you know. Rumors of the the decline of American civilization, or at least its mm-hmm. role in the world, have always been exaggerated because yeah. it's still the reserve currency. It is, and when it's people, the crypto, we'll talk about that in a second. Well, but it's, it's the, that's what crypto is supposed to, like a world currency. But it remains the dollar. It remains it. It's also just a psychological indicator or a consumer sentiment indicator on a global level, and that is when the dollar is strong. The dollar strength is inversely correlated to how uh, generally the global markets are feeling about. Uh, about how the world is doing. And mm-hmm. when we enter into tumultuous times, whether it's a war or global inflation, there's a flight to safety. And the ultimate safe haven is U.S. treasuries and you need dollars to buy those. So it's sort of a, 
it's what it's a negative forward-looking indicator or present indicator of how the world is feeling about the world. Right. Right. But like, like look at this, but it's also the weird recession, which is that people feel like there's a recession or there's going to be a recession, and yet consumer spending is up. You go out anywhere in any city that I've been to, and it's packed. People are out. Uh, yeah. Airports are full. Um, everything. It's just nuts to go out right now. It's hard to get anything. It's hard to, um, people are buying up everything. Um, you know, I, there is a, there's a delayed pandemic response, but it still doesn't, it seems to be People don't consider that there's a pandemic, even though there is. Lots and lots of people I know have COVID again or have had it for the first time. Mm-hmm. My brother, for example, got it. Um, so, uh, so it's just it's hard to explain. I think Jamie Dimon was who is considered one of the people with most insight because he's got so many signals. Uh, said it's not a recession, although a lot of his numbers are off, including mergers and acquisitions and things like that. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, we might have the the, the worst of all worlds, stagflation, mm-hmm. um, where you have a, uh, not only prices increase, but you have uh, productivity goes down, and every, basically everyone's just quality of life declines. I also worry that I wonder if the signals you and I, the the anecdotal signals that you and I get, are because we live in uh, urban cities. areas that are yeah. still doing quite well, and right. with 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 workers who have the money to. Mm-hmm. Once COVID was over, there was so much pent up demand. I mean, for example, European travel is surged because people well, weren't able to go to Europe. I don't think so. I think every, I think all the numbers are every consumer spending is strong all over the country. It's strong across the board. Across the board. Yeah, it, this is a random walk. We've never been. We've never not gone into a recession when interest rates mm-hmm. go this high. We've never yep. gone into a recession when unemployment is this low. So it's yeah. this is definitely a random walk or an this uncharted is, this territory. This will be interesting to see what happens, it's including creation of companies, because, you know, obviously venture capitalists are pulling back and everything else. Not everything's on the rise. Adam Newman's new venture, Flow Carbon, says it's delaying its product rollout indefinitely. Newman's company plan to release blockchain-based carbon credits by the end of June. Now the company says it's waiting for the crypto market to, quote, stabilize. Uh, I don't know what to say. I'm just kind of bummed it didn't launch. I wouldn't. I would have really enjoyed watching this thing. <laughs> that trade was like right part now. two of We Crashed. Scott's, you know, uh, Kelly O'Coin plays you again, going what? Yeah, kind of I don't. I don't. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. The, the idea of putting carbon credits on the blockchain, mm-hmm. I think it makes sense theoretically. But the reality, mm-hmm. you know, there's just I interviewed a, whim, a woman uh, named Molly who has a site called Web Three is doing just great. It just documents all the kind of. Yes, Web Molly Wood. She's going to be Wood. a guest host while in Scott Free August, just so you know. Oh, is she? She's Molly. Oh, yes, on. indeed. Yeah. Um, there you go. But, you know, she just basically laid it out. She just said her basic premises, and none of us have talked about this. She's like, essentially said, blockchain's shitty technology. So you mm-hmm. have an entire sector trying to base, you know, hundreds of billions Itself. of dollars of investment. Yeah. And value on the notion based on the back of a technology that's that's actually pretty shitty. Yeah. Um, so w- we'll see. I still think that there's going to be a bit of a bounce here. It looks yeah, you've like you've been a bit of a, of a, a non skeptic, I guess. You skeptic, but a non skeptic at the same time. That there yeah, must be something in here. You have investments be, in that area. There's got to be something here, right? Yeah. Uh, it's no. just it's no. like a self fulfilling prophecy. So many smart no. people are working on this. It's sort of like Trump's got to be innocent somewhere in here, but no, he's not. Um, speaking of which, Ivana Trump, RIP. Um, anyway, also sinking rapid delivery startups, companies that offer super fast deliveries are scaling back and going belly up. I think we could have seen this one coming. In New York City alone, VC sank almost 
billion into companies like Joker and GoPuff. Joker has now exited the U.S. and competitors like Fridge No More are out of business. Uh, I don't know what to say. My kids use Uber Eats if they want something. That's, you know what I mean? They never really avail themselves to all these GoPuffs and this and that. So very pandemic-oriented business, very much like Zoom, Peloton, and the others. So what thinks you of this? I mean, this is this has been going on and on uh, for years from Cosmo.com. Um, these things sort of rise and fall, and they never can find an economic footing. Yeah, people who are old enough to remember the kind of Coke and Pepsi wars Cosmo. between Cosmo and Urban Fetch. Yeah. I mean, they hated each other. I forgot about Urban Fetch. Do you remember? I, I had an Urban Fetch t-shirt. But oh, I, I think I, it, Cosmo, I remember very vividly. I used to, I wrote that they were one a sexual assault away from the end of their business because who knows who's working for them. And I just was, I thought the whole thing was really questionable, but go ahead. It's interesting you think that way. Anyways. Uh, I'm a woman. <laughs> there you go. Oh, <laughs> I've been you. shamed. I've been <laughs> you shamed. have been, you should be shamed. Yeah. Anyway, um, what, to talk about these businesses because people like them, but it seems like Uber and Amazon really fulfill this. Uh, you know, I ordered something on Amazon last night. It was there in two hours. It was crazy. Um, it, was a, it was a ski bag, if you can believe it. You know what I mean? Like, how did they have a ski bag available in two hours? Of course, probably hurting all kinds of people. But uh, but these businesses seem, I don't know why visas, $8 billion is a lot of money. That's a crazy amount in New York alone. Yeah, well, if you think about fulfillment, the most efficient form of fulfillment, at least from a shareholder or a company standpoint, is for you to go to a distribution center called a store and then yeah. take it home because they yeah. you know your home when you're taking it home. It's, right. There's no more efficient way to get it from the store to your home than someone who mm-hmm. knows the exact routing and where it goes in the refrigerator. Yeah. And then the only and then you have these companies, FedEx, UPS, and now Amazon, that have basically said, "All right, we're going to make businesses out of the last mile." And the, re- the reality is the, the capital here, and because of the scale you need to reach, is staggering. And there's all these fever dreams about, and then Uber kind of, to a certain extent, gets into the last mile with Uber Eats. And I thought that Uber would get into last last mile and be a competitor against Amazon, which never happened. But people get, there's this consensual hallucination that consumers are willing to pay extra to get their gum, their water, you know, the, the argument, and I interviewed the CEO of Joker and GoPuff was that 80% of items that people get from CVS or Walgreens mm-hmm. are the same, like hundred SKUs. They and probably so they had started, that, right. They started yeah. renting these micro warehouses. It makes sense, but no one, fulfillment, the last mile is, is incredibly expensive and no one's mm-hmm. been able to reach the scale other than FedEx, UPS, and Amazon. And every, every kind of couple decades, yeah. People forget history, and you have a 35-year-old venture capitalist that wasn't around mm-hmm. for Urban Fetcher Cosmo. Yep. Yep. But here, the the literally incinerator of cash these companies have become it because is. it's so expensive is striking. It is amazing. Have you been ever offered one? Have you have you it, has it struck you? I know you've made Bitcoin investments and this and that, but has this ever gotten you? Uh, interested? Have you ever made an investment in this? No, I, I advise a I advise a VC fund that I believe invested in the one in Europe. I think it's Gorillas. Uh, anyways, I but I've just never wanted this. To me, is your your you're attempting to compete with Amazon. The majority mm-hmm. of products you can get from Amazon within 48 hours for free. And in certain cities with Amazon, is it now? You can get- Three hours. The kids the kids at uh, L2 used to order lunch from Amazon now, and it would get there mm-hmm. within 43 minutes. I was dumbfounded by this. You're not only competing with Amazon, you're competing yeah. with Amazon's core competence and where they have yep. made staggering investments. Mm-hmm. So, But this space, it's amazing just how- f- 
how ugly, how fast things got for this entire but, space. You know, you, you mentioned like regular retail and it goes right to your story. Wegmans just opened. You know Wegmans? It's like this incredibly successful. Yeah. It just opened near me and it, people were insane. And I, we went, actually, that was our Friday night fun. Uh, just so mm-hmm. you know, for this is where I am as a person in life. Um, Amanda and the two younger kids. And did Louis go? No, Louis wasn't here. And we had a great time. I hate to, t- it's like going to an Apple store, but a, but Apple, the actual apples, you know, how much fun that is when you used to go mm-hmm. to the a- Apple store. And I got to tell you, the presentation, the merchandising, the, 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 it's such a contrast. This is what I thought. This is a, this, this company has shown how to compete against Amazon because you go to the Amazon store, which also opened one of those grab and go things. And it's soulless. You don't want to shop there. You want to flee from it because the, you can see the cameras everywhere. It's creepy. It, it's uh, antiseptic. I don't know how else to put it. It's really unfun. And then you have a Wegman. So retailers, if they're really good, like a Wegmans, can really um, competitive prices. Suddenly, everybody's everyone's giving you coupons everywhere. Obviously, Wegmans mm-hmm. is really interesting to see something on that scale of creativity and delivery. And it was packed with all kinds of people, which was really, they had a grocery store on one end, a huge prepared food thing. And I just thought, boy, they're going to clean Whole Foods clock and all the Amazon go stores. You know, the lack of creativity is, Amazon's good at logistics, but not merchandising and creativity. And it was interesting. So do you have, do you have a former romantic partner you would describe as the one who got away in your life? No. No? No, why? Uh, well, it's not. I wasn't asking about you. I was just setting up an opportunity to talk about me. Um, yeah, okay, because I'm the, glad the ones that got away got away. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Because we, do, we don't have enough of the dog, Father. <laughs> Anyways, um, when I first moved to New York, I fell yeah. very much in love with a woman who was a, uh-huh. a, a doctor, and our relationship got very serious very fast. Anyway, mm-hmm. she was one of the heiresses of the families to the Wegmans. And, of course, the first oh. thing she did to reflect that she was serious about me was we went oh, up to Rochester, God. New York, and she gave me a, a back, you know, like an insider's yeah. tour of Wegmans. Yeah. And I had never heard of Wegmans. And it yeah. was kind of like, if you want to be a part of this family, you're going to have to understand Stand Wegmans. Wegmans. That's <laughs> true. And it's sort of a cross. The way I described it's like it. Bucky's. I also like Bucky's, but go ahead. The way I described it is it's a cross between Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And that is, it has sort of that but Whole better. Foods special feel, but at a mm-hmm. lower price. Because you walk yeah. into Whole Foods and you think, wow, the sushi's amazing here, the prepared food's amazing here. And then you buy a, a, a bunch of grapes and it's $73 and you're sort of yeah. turned off. Right. And whereas Wegmans is able to create some of that like like a real luxury uh, indulgence. Scott, they've gone better. It's nicer than Whole Foods is depressing compared you think, I went you to think, Whole Foods. That's interesting. I've been in Wegmans in a while. You I'm going to take it to our Wegmans. Now it wow. is. This one is. I'll tell you that. I can't and, go. And it's too emotionally tumultuous for come- me. <laughs> <laughs> got away. You could have been a Wegmans heir. You could have been working for Wegmans. Think uh, about that. Yeah, no, it's how I kind of my life flashed in front of my my eyes that I would wow. be stuck figuring Wegmans. out. People RFID are crazy codes. for it because it's oh, such it's, a pleasing it's a, store. It's got a religious like cult following. It's because it's really good. I'm drinking their look at this. I'm drinking their pure cook. This is not an ad for Wegmans, but it's re- all their their whatever versions. They have versions of everything like Whole Foods does, the 365, and they're all fantastic. I got to say, I don't want to do an ad for it, but they, they can buy an ad if they want, but here's the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's named, also, great place to work. Fortune names Wegmans one of the 2,000 
2021, 100 best companies to work with. I was, you and I are going to go, we're going to have a Wegman on. I just can't go there, Kara. You need That's to. Well, I'm going to have painful. it in Scott for August. We're doing a Wegman. Because it was really interesting. Because the first time I thought, wow, Amazon is fucked with these people because they have done something. I have been to Wegmans in Pennsylvania and this was a step up. And I thought, oh, these people have come to play. Mm-hmm. Come to play. And it actually was my Friday night. Date night was at Wegmans. <laughs> I'm such a loser. That's a good time. It was. I had we had such a good time, and then we had got some food and we sat outside. Anyway, um, let's go to our first big story. Now, something not as pleasant as Wegman's. Elon Musk doesn't want to go to the Delaware court anytime soon. Of course, he doesn't because he's going to get, as you said, railed. Uh, Musk has, Musk legal team has asked to delay his Twitter trial until February 2023. Twitter wants a four-day trial this coming September. The date could be decided on Tuesday shortly after we release this episode. I think they're going to go with the fast and fast one. What is what is why is he delaying? What's he doing so he can insult them some more, which is a violation of, of the terms of the contract? What just create more evidence for them that he's a bad faith actor? What do you think is happening here? Uh, I think it's pretty obvious. This is acknowledgement that he has a shitty case. And yeah. I mean, think about it. If it was quote unquote his his bullshit launderers are out there saying Twitter is toast, and yeah. he's he's trying to pretend. That yeah. if he says it enough times, like Trump does, if he creates a lie yeah. and a mythology enough times that people uh-huh. start believing it, that, oh, this is a slam dunk case. If he thought, and if him and his lawyers thought that they, this case had any of the veracity that they're claiming it does, they'd want to yeah. get to a, a right. they'd want to get in front of a judge and have right. him, quote unquote, relieved right. of his, of his obligations. But here's what his lawyer said. His lawyer said, as the, the facts state right now, we're fucked. And if we go in front yeah. of a judge, the judge mm-hmm. is going to compel us to close. So they're claiming they need more time to right. look at the bots. Meanwhile, they've had the fire hose for a month. They haven't been able to offer anything resembling any type yep. of evidence. And he's violating it, except against him. He's First of all, he's violating by insulting them. He had a, an agreement not to do that. Now, that may be a slap on the wrist. He also knew about it. He's just, he's put out evidence against himself. Like he's, you know, it's sort of like Trump-like. He has no self-control. He has absolutely yeah. no control, impulse control. It's yeah. And it's a sign of success. It's a, it's a sign yeah. of the society we live in where we tell these innovators they can get away with, whatever uh, they want. with anything. But yeah. it, effectively, what the strategy is, what him and his lawyers have decided is, uh, they're moving to what I would refer to as a hostage strategy. This is now a hostage yeah. situation where their attitude is, if we can delay it, Right. We're going to make life so you. uncomfortable for Twitter. We're going to continue shitposting. We're going to create yeah. this. We're going to we're going to maintain their status being in limbo, mm-hmm. which will be bad for advertising, bad for the business, and weaken their resolve, and yeah. then extract an unfair, uh, an unfairly um, low payment or penalty. Yeah, I think they're going to get the twenty billion. I think you're right. I have to say. Well, this is the second thing that happened last yeah. week that didn't yeah. get much news. They appointed a chancellor, and guess what? It's a woman. And guess what her one of her most recent cases was? She Twitter compelled and Kohlberg Tesla. and Company to close. Oh on, right. She's uh, a compeller. Well, she she faced They have to, right? She faced she was presented with a mm-hmm. case that looks almost identical to this, except the yeah. size was five hundred and fifty million on forty four billion. Right. And and guess what she asked them to do? She said, Oh, you went back yeah. and tried to queer your financing. You tried yep. to create a script of noncompliance, which was bullshit. Yep. Yep. You need to show up. And I mean, th- this is and this is what's going to happen. Look what's happened to the stock last week, Kara. The stock keeps going up. It's up again today because everyone said, "Okay, this is every day that goes on. It looks more and more likely 
that a Delaware chancellor is going to order this guy to show up with $54.20. Or the or the difference between its current price. And that's, that's right. what a lot of people were talking about. This is interesting. I sent you an Atlantic story, which I thought it's a law professor. And this I thought was the best um, thing um, where he was talking about um, what's going to happen. The Delaware court hears disputes between the biggest corporations in the world, represented by the most sophisticated counsel with the most significant investors on Wall Street. When they show up in a court with a contract, the court presumes that when they sign the contract, they meant it. They're not going to allow parties to walk away from deals. Musk is a big boy, and this court treats those parties like big boys and girls. Uh, When they make their mistakes, they eat their mistakes. And so it's really, and one of the other things he said, uh, which was Delaware, this is a really important paragraph. Delaware lives and dies by corporate law. If Delaware is unable to enforce an order, Delaware goes out of business. So enforcing an order is the highest priority for the Delaware court. Delaware has a sequestration statute that permits the judge in the chancery court to order the seizure of a party's assets in order to secure their appearance in court. Tesla is incorporated in Delaware, so in theory, the court could seize Tesla shares in order to compel Musk. A Delaware court will not be pushed around by Elon Musk. This is his worst nightmare. Yeah, it's it not really going to be tried in the court of public opinion. There's no jury. Yeah. Yep. The chancellor overseeing this case is probably yeah. not even Twitter. She doesn't give a flying fuck what he says about her on Twitter. Yeah. Yep. That's they true. are hardcore litigators, yeah. corporate litigators. Yep. And it's also built for speed, as we talked about. She yeah. listens to the evidence and then she says, this is what you need to do. And by the way, you're exactly right. The, the Delaware Chancery Court could seize the shares in Tesla they if he doesn't to. comply. They have to if he doesn't comply. They, they, they He cannot... He cannot do an end run around them. They cannot allow it to happen. That is really the case. You know, they're not going to, not just push it around. It would be curtains for Delaware if they did that. It wouldn't be, Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. It wouldn't wouldn't even be curtains for Delaware. It'd be curtains for a pillar of our society. And that is, oh, we know we treat rich rich people better. That's part of capitalism. They get, their their kids get more opportunity. They have a larger selection set of mates. They get to get away with uh, what I'll call minor skirmishes around the law. But yeah. if rich people, especially rich innovators, can avoid yeah. the yeah. law and not not have to comply with court orders, yeah. then we're just kind of out of business. We yeah. have gone full crony. Yeah. We've yeah. gone. Yeah. We're an autocracy, and we're I no longer say, America. I, I I don't agree with the rail thing, but I think they should enforce the law, which you had. The Twitter Musk agreement has an October twenty fourth pres- quote presumptive drop dead date. So that was also it had to be closed by then. So this is moving fast, and everybody well, they're going to decide not, this week. They're making they're yeah. making arguments in front of the judge yep. about mm-hmm. delaying or expediting it. Yep. So the first yep. big signal back from the Delaware Chancery Court is going to happen this week. And I don't know the semantics of an argument around delay, but mm-hmm. my sense is my sense is these people come to play and aren't scared of Twitter yep. or a yep. guy, you know, a I guy's know. Twitter following. Yeah. And yep. what I find just hilarious yeah. is all these these sycophants who yeah. have are two degrees away from Elon. Elon's their hero. And they keep putting out these tweets saying Oh, but it's like you wouldn't close on a house if there were termites oh, in the basement. And it's like, okay, moron, if I if I if I sign something saying I'm waiving all diligence. Yeah. Yeah. And and I challenge anybody. Yeah. I challenge anybody to find any credible legal scholar, any credible legal think tank yeah. who has mm-hmm. not said the following. He's fucked. He's fucked. That is true. Speaking of which, two of Musk's top lieutenants are vying for control. And one of, of, of his charitable giving, according to, I would say, a jaw-dropping story in Wall Street Journal, also Bloomberg had done this also earlier. A former professional gambler, poker player named Igor Kroganov befriended Musk, along with his girlfriend, who's also a very well-known professional 
poker player, now uh, had been overseeing the more than $5 billion in Tesla shares that Musk pledged to charity. Um, It it, it seems like he's not anymore. He's been removed from the story. It's very unclear. But Jared Birchall, who is really his longtime wealth manager, who's been behind a lot of this stuff, who also serves as CEO of Neuralink, uh, Musk's brain interface company, where also his current baby mother also works, um, uh, is, is in a, trying to wrest control, but he sort of handed over quite a lot of power to a guy who had no experience in philanthropy. The, the lives of the rich and famous are behind the scenes, weird and sad, I find, in a lot of ways. I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't I mean, I don't Jared know. Birchall sounds like a very competent wealth manager. He's from banks. He's got a good reputation. I always thought he was a great solvent, that Elon yeah. Musk has really good instincts, and that is, yeah. if you... As you get older, what you realize is the the best strategy to keep yourself out of control is to surround yourself with people that will not only push back on your ideas, but bring a certain skill set or demeanor that is much different than yours. And I always thought that one of the savviest moves he ever made was having this this man, you know, in his circle, because he strikes me as just a very buttoned up, credible, unlike Elon, everything that comes out of his mouth, he thinks, is this true before he says it? All right. And, but this other guy, yeah, I, I don't. Can you? Seems interesting. Seems interesting, but at some point, all these people—they all get to think they are the person, which I thought was interesting. In his case, you know, he—they—they they cycle in and out of these people, who then get the power of the the billionaire, and and every one of them that has one like this, and some are better than others, but they all attract other people that are whether it's Tony Shea or, you know what I mean? They all attract uh, people that maybe don't have their best interests at heart or enjoy being close to the sun. It's a really, um, I fa- I've always found it very sad. And I-, I remember saying to one of them, they're like, oh, you're mean to me, Karen. And I'm like, I'm not pay- I- I'm not on your payroll. Maybe that's why it seems like that. And it was, it's always really, you know, people advantaging themselves from these people. It must be, I don't think it's hard to be a billionaire, but boy, who do you trust, essentially? So I've worked, I have worked closely with a few billionaires in the hedge fund business. Mm-hmm. And what I found is the smart ones surround themselves with competence and people who push back. But the yeah. the temptation, and you can understand it, mm-hmm. is there's always a few people that sneak in that they have personal social relationships with. Yep. And everybody is trying to penetrate the circle of the billions. Right. Because if yep. they can get close to the product, if they can approximate to the power and proximate mm-hmm. to the money, they, they'll get advantages from it. Yep. And yep. a lot of them kind of work their way in through it's a personal nice relationship. It's nice being on the plane. It's nice, you know, being on the plane, being oh, in get invited to fun events, events and interesting yeah. things. And they will yeah. they will figure out a way, they will fund your, your next movie or your business idea or put you on contract or consulting. And oftentimes it's 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 through the spouse, friends yeah. with the spouse they get in yeah, there. Yeah, in this case it was through Grimes. Um, uh, so... And there's always a health. What I was noted, what I noticed was there was always a healthy number of people whose primary competence or the the way they got close to power or this individual was they are pure sycophants. Mm-hmm. They're just yes. oh no, you're right. This is you, the, oh my constant text messages. This was a great move. I know the media is saying. I know yeah. I know the courts and legal experts are saying that you're lying and you're shit out of luck. But you know what? That was a genius move. Yep. And it's nice to have people around you telling you <laughs> that, that you're sucks. always right and laughing yeah. at your jokes. And I, I've always seen, I, I've always, you could always spot them. You walk into an organization, 
guy runs a hedge fund, billions of dollars, a lot of competent people, and there's always two or three people that are there yep. because they've just constantly got the knee pads out. And it is also sometimes your own family, too. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's weird. And it, Elon Musk is in a weird period, and it's a shame. It's a damn shame because he's got some really amazing visions about future, the Tesla stuff, the the space stuff. This is just a weird, bad year. Well, well I've got a, I got a lot of shit on this for Twitter, but uh, yeah. I think Tesla is arguably one of the strongest brands in the world. Mm-hmm. I think SpaceX is one of the most ascendant brands in the world. Mm-hmm. Can you think of an individual whose brand equity has declined more in 90 no. days than Elon Musk no, right now? we should do a special show on that brand equity decline. It really has. Even my kids who really liked him are like, ugh. Like, ugh. They go, ugh, like that. And they didn't. They liked him. They, they thought he was cool. Um, anyway, we'll see what goes on here. But Delaware Court is, does not think you're cool, Elon. You better start shaping up or shipping out. All right, Scott, let's go on a quick break. And when we come back, Netflix chooses Microsoft as its dance partner. And we'll speak with a friend of Pivot, Krista Bilton, about cults, pyramid schemes, and in vitro fertilization, all of Scott's favorite topics. Scott, we're back. There's new details on how Microsoft landed the Netflix deal. The coup is credited to an ad technology called Xander, which Microsoft bought off AT&T last year. The tech allows ad buyers and sellers to transact across different platforms, including connected televisions. This is a big deal. If Microsoft's moved in and out of tech, you're very familiar with this, I know. They bought different companies over the years. And this was thought to go to Google or one of the other. There's one other big one I've been blanking on it was. I think it's Magnum or something like that. So this is a big deal that they went with Netflix. Now, Reed Hastings was on Microsoft's board. I don't believe he's still on the board. But uh, it's a a big big coup for uh, Satya Nadella. Yeah, it is. And something I didn't realize, you know, realize that Microsoft's the fourth largest advertiser in the world. They, are. they have like mm-hmm. a 3% market share, just be- not just behind, but they're behind Amazon that's at 12%. Most people don't think of Amazon as a media company. It's a huge media company. And then mm-hmm. it's Facebook and then it's Google. And what I think this says is, I mean, there's a couple things. One, when the economy, the last 13 years have been just so much champagne and cocaine and so much capital that everyone has vertically integrated backwards and forwards. So let's not outsource ad sales. Let's build our mm-hmm. own ad sales force team. Let's not put our iPhones in stores. Let's build out our own stores. And when capital is cheap, yep. you go vertical. Now capital is getting more expensive. And Netflix has made the decision with our stock off 70%. If we're going to try and go into the ad supported business, let's not build our own ad sales yeah, team. Let's for go now. somewhere else. For now. When I interviewed Ted Sarandos, it sounded like oh, they you, weren't you going to temporary? The, the other thing yeah. it says is, and it's such a 180, mm-hmm. is that in terms of partnerships and your reputation in the community, mm-hmm. I remember I did um, a brand strategy project for a company called AMB that ultimately ended up becoming Prologis. And it's run by one mm-hmm. of the biggest brains in the real estate world, a guy named Hamid Mogadam. Mm-hmm. And his brand, when I was interviewing him about what their strategy was, our strategy is to be known in the marketplace as being a, a fantastic partner. Mm-hmm. And that the real estate business is so many cowboys and so much full body contact negotiation that we want to be mm-hmm. seen as a great partner that wants to make money, yeah. but also wants our partners to make money. And I thought that's such a unique visionary positioning. And this is what's happening in the tech community. And that is of all partners, the Darth Vader of the 90s is now perceived as a better partner. People, people don't... You, Oh my gosh, Amazon has been the greatest partner, said almost no one ever. Oh my God, I love working with Facebook. They told me yeah. they've been honest, they've been transparent, yeah. said no one ever. Yeah. Uh, and Google, who puts, uh, you know, uh, Google, which is kind of nicer, but still mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they overnight, they can, the driver's they can do seat. it. 
They can do an algorithm change and you're shit out of luck. Mm -hmm. But Microsoft is genuinely seen in the business community as being a thoughtful, good partner, emphasis on the word partner. And that's why I think they went with them. Yeah, they've been buying, moving in and out of ad tech during the bomber years. What was that one they bought? They bought a couple of big companies and they sort of went sideways on quite a few of them. Apple has done the same thing, like had moved a little bit into advertising and moved out. Um, what's interesting uh, is the ones that lost out, specifically Google here, which is which means that Microsoft has come to play. And, you know, if other companies follow Netscape and Netflix's lead uh, and bringing in Peloton, Stitch Fix, Substack, any of them, uh, Microsoft is now an option in ways, you know, a good partner, like you said. It's not their core business, but they it's good for their business and it's related to their business. Um, and they buying this company, which was a lot less than their previous ad buys, uh, is, I think, very important to them. And it shows their resurgent interest in ad tech, which sort of waned after their last thing didn't go as well. Hmm. hmm. So, yeah, we'll see. I think it's a bad we'll move. See. Going back to Netflix, I personally think it's a bad move. You like it. I like I think it. Core, I think core to Netflix's brand is you don't is uninterrupted storytelling, but it, it'll be very. It, it's it's almost be very nowhere. I was using free TV this weekend and watched Madagascar or Paramount Plus. I ended up buying Paramount Plus, but I, I didn't mind the advertising at all. Hmm. I didn't. I found it very relevant and it was fine. It was it was painless because it was, it's much shorter than linear television. Uh, interesting. Um, there's a uh, Disney is also in the ad tech business too. So it's a really it's a lucrative side business for a lot of companies. Um, so we'll see where it goes. But congratulations to Microsoft again. Nobody no, their name was not anywhere when I was at Con Lion um, as possible possible. Anyway, we'll see where that goes. There you go. So let's bring in our friend of Pivot. Krista Bilton is the author of this amazing book called Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings, a memoir of her unconventional childhood and her revelation that her father was a prolific sperm donor. Um, Krista, this book is better than I thought. You told me this story once when I was at your house. And I, you know, I have kids who we use sperm donors for my kids, uh, all of them, all four of them. And I just was sort of blown away by the stuff you found. So, so let's start with your mom, uh, who I also met, who was also a character, let me just say, if I, as I recall. Um, talk a little bit about um, about your mom. She was a, an out lesbian in the 1980s. She's still sort of uh, running around. Your mom has a lot, got a lot of energy and stuff. Um, talk a little bit about that and like what how this set up to get to have you being born and these other people also by other parents. Yeah. Yeah. So my mother, um, as you mentioned, she was a lesbian, mm -hmm. wanted to have kids. Um, she grew up in the fifties and sixties at a time when, you know, when she sort of first, um, when she first realized that she had feelings for women, it was so not a part of society at that time. And it was mm -hmm. so hidden that she actually thought she was the only lesbian in the world. She didn't yes. even know there was the word lesbian. Mm -hmm. Um, so just to contextualize where she was coming from. And when mm -hmm. she decided in her 30s that she wanted to have children, she didn't know a single gay person who had had a family or had mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. um, so just to sort of set the, the scene. So she mm -hmm. then went, she really, really wanted kids. And mm -hmm. she, but she, you know, sperm banks were just starting to crop up at that time. And so she went on a manhunt to find <laughs> a sperm donor. <laughs> and my dad walked into a hair salon and she looked at him and he was this physically gorgeous man. And she just mm -hmm. had this feeling that this was the one. So mm -hmm. she she asked him out to lunch and offered him $2,000 to uh, give his sperm to her. And mm -hmm. 
And that was the beginning of the journey with my dad. And I call mm -hmm. him my dad, not a sperm donor, because she felt then a lot of shame not giving us this traditional family. So she then proceeded to, after I was born, um, financially support him so that he would play a role in our lives. Right. And so he promised that, not to donate to anyone else, correct? Yes. And she mm -hmm. she made him make this promise that he would never donate to anyone else. And so he he made that promise and then secretly started donating as his main profession for, mm -hmm. for almost a decade after that. So first off, I don't think this is that unusual. I meet a lot of people that I offer money for sex in exchange for. I don't. <laughs> Hello, Krista. Welcome. Welcome to Pivot from the Vox Media Podcast. And so first off. We'll have to talk about that later. I'm, I'm yeah. so curious. Just, uh, it's, pre it's pretty straight. It's, it's been happening throughout history. Anyways. Um, All right. Ask a question, Scott. My first observation is your 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 mother sounds like a remarkable woman. And I always have just a ton of respect for people who were outwardly gay before it was cool or acceptable. It sounds like your mother was a real, for lack of a better term, courageous woman who was just, you know, I am here. Yes, she my mother was incredible. She she lived this fabulous out there life. She, mm -hmm. you know, as I grew up, she she would come out of the closet in big ways. She was on talk shows talking about our family. And then that led to her losing a job. She would go back in the closet. So she had this in and out relationship with that. But she was she was an incredible and fascinating woman in ways beyond this story. I mean, she pioneered mm -hmm. many new age religions that some think of as cults. She was a leader in several multi-level marketing companies that some might call pyramid schemes. So Growing up, we we lived this really, you know, um, big life. Sometimes we were living in multi-million dollar mansions one minute, on the verge of homelessness the next. Um, mm -hmm. So the book is really a love letter to my mother because mm -hmm. she's, she's so, but, something else. So but take us back to Krista in the eighth grade, like any 13-year-old girl becoming more cognizant of your social status and what people think of you. What was that like? Uh, is it something where you admired her courage or was it just really fucking embarrassing and, and, and an object of insecurity for you? You know, it, it I think my feelings about it vacillated with my mother's feelings. I think mm -hmm. so often kids take on the attitude that their parents have. So I think when it was tough for her or when she became overwhelmed with shame and went in back into the closet, then I myself would be in the closet about my mother's sexuality. So, you know, I went to many different schools growing up just because of our up and down financial circumstances. And and at about 12, I started just lying about this part of myself. I mean, it was you have to understand that at that time, you know, that was then the mid 90s. Yeah. It was like a huge deal when Ellen came out as gay mm -hmm. and she didn't have kids. And then the reaction that, you know, the reaction to her coming out, I think she lost her show. Um, yep. The first time I ever saw a gay parent on television was The Birdcage. That movie was a big deal for me. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we, it's so different now. You know, Kara, when you decided yeah. to have kids, that was probably still a unique It was very early. Yeah, it was thing. at the time. And I wanted to have kids since I was 18. I bought children's clothes. You know, I bought baby clothes when I was in college because I was certain I was going to have kids, but you couldn't. And one of the issues was sperm donation. And it was so disorganized. And I did it in San Francisco, which made it easier. Um, but it was a very disorganized and not very regulated situation. You know what I mean? And so what was, yeah. it was, I, I found out stuff I wasn't supposed to find out. It wasn't very uh, organized, even though there were sperm banks by this time. And so you, the, one of the things is, 
you found about your siblings and and your family's relationship to them because your your father who had a very you know unusual journey himself um uh, continued to do this. So you write about possibly unknowingly dating your half-brother. Um, you talked about meeting your siblings. Can you talk about this? Because it is, you know, my sons just found two of their sisters. We've found out about another mm. through 23andMe. Um, and I am not supposed to. I have a no donor. And I'm not supposed to contact the donor. But my kids could easily find him, I'm guessing, if they tried. So the whole thing feels like not very thought out as it was happening, mm-hmm. but talk a little bit about your experience. Yeah, I think people are starting to figure these things out. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book because, you know, I was an early child of a donor, but now I feel like these kids are coming to an age where they're asking mm-hmm. these questions and mm-hmm. connecting with these siblings. Um, for me, the, you know, my father never told my mother that he was donating. And this story came out it's a sort of long story that you'll have to read in the book. But um, in 2007, he was on a front page Sunday New York Times um, story. And he told he called my mother and he said, go get the newspaper. And she was like, why, Jeffrey? And just, just go get it. And so she she went down to the local Palisades newsstand. And, and there on the cover of the newspaper of record was um, a picture of my father with his arm around this girl that looked exactly like me and my sister. And hmm. so she proceeded to have a, a giant what she would call a mental breakdown at that point, because then mm-hmm. she realized that not only had we had this very unconventional family, but it was also a growing unconventional family. And mm-hmm. she, you know, she was trying to grapple with how many siblings there might be. So she did not want to tell us that this, that she had made this discovery. And she, in her mind, thought she would never tell us. Mm-hmm. And then she discovered that I was probably dating my half brother, as you said. And mm-hmm. so she had to tell us. And that's mm-hmm. when she sat us down and and had this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Well, talk about that and, and meeting your siblings because you then sought them out, correct? Yeah. So when I first learned about the siblings, I think because I had had such a complex and ever-changing family unit, my mother had many different girlfriends growing up. She had addiction stuff. And, you know, we had step-siblings who came in and out. And so I think I just couldn't fathom the idea of having relationships with new siblings and possibly over a hundred of them. It was just too much for my brain at that time. So for almost 10 years, I wanted nothing to do with these biological siblings. And then a wild set of circumstances changed my whole perspective on it. And, and now I've, I've come to love and be close with several of them. So, Mm -hmm. and there's 35, is that correct? That you know of, I think it's now up to about 40. Um, we find out about a new one, you know, every few months, usually a lot around the holidays when the, Mm -hmm. When ancestry and how do you do that? Technology, right? Ancestry yes. or twenty three and me. That's um, right, or something like that's where we did. I mean, at one point, Ann Wojcicki said she gets a call a day from an angry sperm donor who now has been found out. But when they were no donors and things like that, yeah, because I mean, it's impossible what? to once one of your relatives. People don't realize anonymity. This. Yeah, yeah, is a thing of the past. I don't yeah. think it really exists anymore. So that's something I think people are grappling with now as well. Um, so yeah, we. Yeah, when they're hosting specials, when the when the DNA testing kits are, mm-hmm. you know, around the holidays hosting specials, that's usually when we find out about new siblings. New siblings. Um, because the thing is that at the time my father was donating, 
it was mostly heterosexual couples yeah. mm-hmm. where the father was infertile. And at the time, the sperm banks advised those families not to tell their children mm-hmm. that they were donor conceived. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, a lot of my brothers and sisters, the early ones we discovered were the kids of gay families because mm-hmm. they knew that there was something to seek out. Mm-hmm. But the ones, mostly the ones we find out about today, uh, took a DNA test for fun and realized that they had a different yep. biological father. Yep. Yeah, it's really it's technology. One popped up the other day, and my again, my one of my sons has met two of them uh, who reached out to him. The other is like, I'll just wait and see. I'll just, you know what I mean? He's like, mm, maybe not. And my other one's embraced it. It's a really interesting thing. Scott? So I have some personal experience here. I was a sperm donor when I was at UCLA. And do you think that um, and my mom made me stop because of what the situation that you described um, do you, do you, is, has this been a good thing for you? Is there a way it's, it seems to me, this is an issue of if you had two or three siblings you didn't know about, that feels like a feature, not a bug. But if 300 people are all of a sudden, and this could have happened, it was totally unregulated back then. It's still totally unregulated. Still, it still is. And it creates, as somebody who's on the different side of this, it creates a lot of questions. It's like, if you had four kids out there, then that's one thing. Because you can sign up and then a message goes out to them saying, this is your donor father. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if it's 400? And I'm just curious what your experience, has this been, what have been the positives and the negatives as you get older of meeting um, biological siblings? You know, it's, it's at, the, at the end of the book, it's a, it's a complete positive. Mm-hmm. But it was a journey to get there. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Kara, every kid has a different relationship to it and a different journey with it. And mm-hmm. um, I think often the more difficult journey that I've seen is the kids who were lied to and not told because then in their adulthood, it's just this big piece of biological piece of them that they didn't understand. And so, but I think, I think understanding it and the truth of it and the, you know, what's wild is that there is a biological connection that you wouldn't mm-hmm. expect. Um, but I've become really close with several of my siblings, and some hmm. of the some of the similarities are wi- are are truly incredible. Yeah. Um, but it's a complex thing. Scott, have you developed any relationships with them, Scott? I mean, that's yeah, Scott. Uh, so I I have not signed up. Um, I'm I am mm. to be honest with you, I find it it's a um, an unusual situation to think that you might have somewhere between one and twelve hundred kids out there. Yeah, and that's well, the that problem. A lot of donations, they don't Scott. let you, they don't let you calibrate it. They don't let you say, "Yeah, I'd like to right. meet," you know, a statistically <laughs> significant sampling of the ones who aren't going to ask me for money. And I can, I also just hate the idea of a bunch of thirty-eight year olds recognizing they're losing their hair and having trouble maintaining an erection and getting increasingly angry. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Let me just say, Scott, they can find you without your consent. That's the thing. But when you say it's rewarding and there's biological, it, it, do you feel something meeting them? Do you feel, an, a, it's just such a fascinating experiment. Do you, do you feel is. something emotionally? Is there something in the air about biological connection or is it because they walk the same way or they look the same way or you do have a shared history? You know, that's something I'm still parsing out, but there is something to biology that's hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do feel an instant closeness. I'm sure part of that is, but, you know, in the same way that you have family members where some of them you resonate with in a deeper way than other ones, 
It has a lot to do with what you have in common, your proximity to each other as a, in a location. Um, so, but from a nature nurture perspective, I think a lot of the kids, it's, it gives them. So for me, you know, I have a complex relationship with my father. Now he's struggled with homelessness and some mental illness or some mental health stuff. And, um, that, that was hard for me growing up because I really cared about this man who had wound up playing a role in my life. And so I think connecting with the siblings in a, in a strange way is a way of connecting with him. Right. A hundred percent. And that, I think for some of them, it's a way of connecting with a biological side of themselves that yeah, perhaps they didn't things. grow yeah. up with. Yeah. So last yeah. question, with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, there's concern that IVF could be banned. Um, what's your message terrible. to lawmakers? Should we regulate the sperm donation industry? Where do you think this is going with the overturn of Roe v. Wade? Well, I, I obviously think it's it's terrible. I think that, um, you know, something that that I share with all of my siblings is that we each had at least one parent who desperately wanted us to exist and how lucky mm-hmm. were we for this. Mm-hmm. And there are so many kids that don't have that. And yep. I think that, you know, for, I, I think that for kids born into a family where they're wanted this deeply, we should, we should help those families have kids as much as possible. And if people don't feel prepared to be parents, then they shouldn't be forced to because yep. raising kids is a lot. Yep. And, you know, as, as you know, as I know, mm-hmm. um, and I think that to feel desired is the best gift you can give a kid. That is a very good point. Just so people know, one million babies were born using IVF or other assisted reproductive technology between 1987 and 2015. It's uh, it's going to be a big issue for a lot of people. Anyway, Chris, this is a wonderful book. I'm so thrilled you wrote it. I loved hearing about it at the time, and it's I, I love the book. It's fantastic. Uh, the book is called Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings. Uh, now it's more. You'll have to change the book for the paperback. Uh, thank you so much, Krista. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Krista. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Scott. Scott, how did you become a sperm donor? Uh, I was a junior in mm-hmm. college, and I lived, I was close friends with a couple of athletes, and the athletes at UCLA had a different job board. Mm-hmm. And one was for sperm donation. And you could make 100 to 200 bucks a week doing something that you know we were doing anyways. Yeah. And probably I went you a lot, probably <laughs> you quite a bit. Hey, don't yeah. rag on my hobbies. Okay. Anyway, so I I went to this place in Santa Monica with my two friends who were both world class water polo players, and these guys mm-hmm. were like golden gods. I mean, they were mm-hmm. physical specimens, but they were also really smart. Yeah. And we, it was interesting. They do a full analysis and create a file on you. They take pictures of you in your underwear. That you give, an, you take an IQ test. They do a personality test and a couple of things. I remember one. They said, "Do you do any drinking or drugs?" I'm like, "Well, I'm an attorney. I do some drinking." And I said, "What about drugs?" I'm like, "Pot every once in a while." And this guy looked up at me, and gave me the stare. And he looked and he said in the most earnest, upset way possible, he said, "That stuff kills sperm dead." <laughs> like I was literally <laughs> like, like. That sperm was the oh, I'll tell, ultimate I'll tell my resource. Kids. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, and then and then okay, and then the last part of the test, and this is uh-huh. is this a little graphic, but it's funny and it's relevant, is a uh-huh. is a test for venereal disease. Yeah. And let's just say I won't go into detail, but Big Ed and the twins were not expecting the violation of autonomy that is a venereal test for men. Oh, okay. And I so I have no what did I do being this. being the big man I am? I yeah. fainted. I passed out. <laughs> <laughs> and I woke up. 
I woke, this totally true story. I woke up and there was a semicircle of very concerned people looking down at me. And the first thing I said was, I'm like, you're not going to want my sperm, are you? Oh, I no. was so upset because I really needed the money. And I'm like, yeah. I had to pass out. Anyways, oh, man. I ended up what did getting- you, what, Two things. I have two questions. What'd you do with the money? And I two- paid tuition. Paid tuition. You used it for tuition. And sperm then- donation put me through my junior year at UCLA. Wow. So you have a lot of kids. I well, that's that's the fear. I've thought about this a lot. But uh, the yeah. thing was- They're going to find you. The thing was, my two water polo players, I mean, it was like a competition. We were all going to see how much. They said, we'll let you know. We'll call you in. And yeah. I thought, there's no way. Mm-hmm. I was literally like, you know, the uh, the le- least attractive Kardashian or that, uh, you know, I was, <laughs> I, it was just on the ride home. It was pretty obvious. I was not going to get called a lot. I got called three or four times a week for a year, and my friends didn't get oh called that God. much. Wow. And we couldn't figure it out because they were smarter than me, much better looking yeah. than me. Yeah. And I, ca- I, ca- I asked the, the folks at the clinic, I said, why is my, my man gravy so in fashion? <laughs> I to and, say that. and they said, you have the peanut butter and chocolate of sperm donation. Do you want to guess what those two things were? I'll I give you hint, I, you just LA. put it, oh, uh, what? I don't know. Um, I was tall. And yeah. Jewish. And that was uh, the gangster cocktail of sperm donors is that a lot of parents in West LA were Jewish. They liked the idea of having yeah. a Jewish donor. And I'm I'm six foot two, which was also, oh, I guess, they yeah. wanted their kids. The peanut butter. Thank you for that visual. Isn't that I'm nice? Like, no, it's not. Isn't that nice? Let me just say, I know a lot about my kids, and so does Amanda about Claire and Saul's father. Uh, I know a lot about him and his family. I didn't get the pictures, but I have since gotten pictures, and it's really quite something. Um, they look just like my kids. He looks just yeah. like my kids. Um, I don't have adult pictures, but um, it's. I think about it a lot. I I did agree not to contact him. My kids did not. You know what I mean? Like, I can't mm-hmm. sign a contract for my kids. And so, it'll be interesting to see if any of these kids meet him. They certainly would be able to if if one of his relatives does one of these genetic tests, one mm-hmm. of the testing thing, which is interesting. But Scott, a year, three or four times a week for a year? And I still found time to do it recreationally. Of course you did. Of course you did. I'm, <laughs> gonna, I'm not going to even ask how or what your methodology was because I think we've gone, we had enough detail for today. Back then, it didn't take much, Kara. Uh, but you are not the father of my children. Your kids seem too well adjusted. That is true. That is, and they have fantastic hair. That is correct. They do. Um, Actually, you know what? Do. I got you know, back then. I had a ponytail. Okay. I had a lot of hair. All right. Well, that was my best feature. I used to roam around Berkeley on a skateboard with a ponytail. Oh my God. Well. Anyways, that's another story. Anyway, one more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. Okay, Scott, let's stop talking about sperm and hear some predictions. Man gravy. I have a prediction that you're going to meet all your kids, but go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. (laughs) My prediction is a little bit different. I'm so excited. Um, Little Scotlets. So super interesting, I think, obviously, the stuff with Twitter. But what people uh, missed this week, there was another fairly big event in the world of corporate governance and shareholder activism. And that is Elliot took a 9% stake in Pinterest. Yes, I saw. And it's it'll be interesting because Ben still controls 30% of the voting shares. So it's not entirely clear how much... I mean, Musk could show up to a single class of shares at Twitter and and paint them into a corner, which ended yeah. up it, which it ended up being ironically him painting himself into a corner. That's going to be the most expensive bout of mania in it's history. Be a great by the Harvard way. Anyways, law case. I mean, the Harvard Business School case. But go ahead. So, but I think um, essentially in social media, 
the subscale players, Twitter, Snap, and Pinterest, mm-hmm. one or two of them in 12 months is probably not going to be an independent company because here's the reality. That I think they're all now trading mm-hmm. below their IPOs. They just haven't worked. Yeah. And they're great products. They're yep. addictive products. They kind of remind me a little bit of the New York Times, and that mm-hmm. is – I remember when I was involved with the New York Times, there was all these amazing stats. 40% of world leaders, including leaders in Muslim countries, mm-hmm. the first thing they read, the leaders read when they wake up in the morning, is the New York yeah. Times. Right. If you watch any news Powerful. program, it's like reading the front page. The front page of the New York Times dictates what the world thinks is important in media. Mm-hmm. But it was always a shitty business. We could never figure out a way to yeah. scale it. It's gotten better, but the stock's still below still where it was 20 years still ago. Still not a big business, not as big as its reputation, for sure. And that you could say the same thing about Snap, yeah. Pinterest, and Twitter, especially yeah. Twitter. Its influence vastly outsizes the quality of its business. Snap's very creative, has mm-hmm. incredibly loyal and a lot of attention. Pinterest was always kind of the little engine that couldn't. We've always wanted Pinterest to win, but it's never yep. been able to build a sustained business. I think of yep. these three companies, uh, yep. you already have you have one guy who's painted himself into a corner is going to have to show up with fifty four dollars and twenty cents. It's just or it's a just, version of that. Yeah, it's just weird to imagine where Twitter will be in twelve months. You have yep. an activist, Elliot, which is one of the deepest pockets, and also very smart people. They are in at Pinterest, and so my prediction is it just makes sense the third domino to fall here. Even though I believe it's also a dual class shareholder, Snap is off fifty yeah, percent in the last good several company. months. Creative, they have so many creative people there. They just hired someone it's else. It's a great it product. Great it's a product. great product. It's just all of these things are ending up to be shitty businesses, which means well, they have been do- they've been getting some traction and some of the stuff they're doing. It's a lot of having to do with the market right now. But I would say among those, probably tw- Pinterest, no question, it will get bought by someone. Uh, Twitter, probably. We'll see what uh, Parag Agrawal will do once he's got uh, Elon in his rearview mirror. They could change um, their business model. That's yeah, what Twitter needs to do. But anyways, 100%. I think the next yeah. point of prediction is you're going to see something happen in the next 12 months. Yep. Around yep. Snap because yep. it's a great oh, product. All right. Okay, all right. It's like all the it's like the other two companies. They're great products. They're addictive, and they've proven to be unreliable. This shitty is perfect because he'd be coming to uh, Code. Maybe you could do the interview with me. He's with dreamy. Evan, Evans. He He's is dreamy. dreamy. He's a lovely guy. He's turned out to be a lovely guy in the end. And he could um, be my son. He's the right age. <laughs> Introduce me as daddy. <laughs> no. Come here. No. <laughs> no. You're too. I'm going to be like. Evan, families hug and hug him. <laughs> He's going to run screaming. Was he born room. in L.A. in the late I 80s? I want you to stay away from him. And There's no life. way that guy is related to me. That guy looks like a different <laughs> species than me. You see how dreamy he is? <laughs> he's, he's a lovely guy. I, I'm not going to call him dreamy, but he's a lovely guy. He's, he's, he's really evolved really well as, as a, of the many people I cover. A, a big surprise. He's turned out to be really interesting and creative. And Anyway. We, we have such an interesting life. Uh, we want to hear from you. Send us your Unless questions. Unless you're my biological kid. We do not want to hear from you. All those kids, call me. Use 23andMe and call no, me. Anyway, no. we, you'll you'll find out before I will. We want to hear from you. Send us your questions about business tech or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT. Scott, that is the show. It's turned out to be quite a, a feckin' show. Um, mm-hmm. We'll be back on Friday. Friday for more. There you go. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Intertot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows and Neil Silverio. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. And just, just FYI, I don't even enjoy hearing from my former students. Mm-hmm.